This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. You know, uh, the LGBTQ yeah. journey, or maybe we can just talk about it human sexuality, the human body, uh, the journey there. Um, maybe you can just start by describing how you got into that and where it all started for you. It, for me, it started, um, primarily as just an academic, um, interest. So like it was over a decade ago, I was like every, I was in a rhythm where every few years I'd write a, uh, Write, write a book on a topic that I was interested in, something that I hadn't studied before. Um, and people were like, you should write a book on homosexuality. And I, I, I literally thought, that's, do we need to write a book on it? Just the Bible says it's wrong and like there's no debate about that. And, you know, so I, you know, but then people started pointing me to different arguments and books and stuff. And it kind of piqued my theological interest, really. So I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. So I started digging into it and I realized there's like dozens of academic books written on what the Bible says. And most of them say the Bible doesn't prohibit same sex sexual relationships, you know, on an academic level. Um, are, you, are you talking about like uh, William Loder's stuff or something oh, of that no, quality? Um, I came across his stuff later on. He actually does say the Bible prohibits right. same sex relationships. Says it's just wrong. Says, <laughs> yeah. Like the Bible's 2000 years old. Like what right, are we doing? Yeah. You know, <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about. Kind of. Um, yeah, there, there's a back in um, I want to say uh, I'm blanking on his name, Oxford scholar who was gay is is gay. Well, he's dead now, but back in uh, I think 1980, brilliant scholar um, wrote kind of a game changing book that opened up a conversation. And there was kind of a flurry of books written in the 80s and 90s, kind, kind of in the wake of that. Some responding, some just kind of taking his theories further. Um, I can't believe I can't remember his name. Anyway, um, <clears throat> yeah. So anyway, so it was just a scholarly interest. I was just started, you know. I'm like, oh, there's there's arguments here that I've never even considered, you know, and and interpretation debates and what's Leviticus 18 actually referring to, and you know, you get into a lot of the ancient Near East stuff. I mean, you, you would you would really appreciate, yeah, some of the arguments in in the peer reviewed literature surrounding some of the prohibition texts and. Hmm. So it just piqued my scholarly interest, and here, so I started getting lost in the in the theology of it. But early on in my journey, I, I I was like, well, hey, this isn't just a theological conversation. And I looked around, and I didn't I didn't have any like gay friends at that time. Um, so I just started getting to know people, um, LGBT people, just to hear their stories, and and that that's really what wrecked me because I mean, literally every single person I talked to, most of the ones people I met um, were raised in a church, mm-hmm. and no longer a part of the church and every single one said I was, you know, they, they talk about how they were treated or mistreated or just ignored or silenced or shamed or mocked or, you know, dehumanized either through silence or through loud mockery, you know, just, and then overhearing the message of the church, it's very much like boycott this and abomination and they caused mm-hmm. the AIDS thing and all just so I, I was like, man, what would it be like being like a 13 year old kid? scared to death because he's like attracted to the same sex through no choice of his own hearing all this stuff you know so so then i my whole pastoral side really opened up to the conversation um 
And I was, so I had these kind of two almost like parallel worlds going on, you know, like I, you know, the theological world and you have always academic straight dudes debating this, you know, and then you have all this really, I mean, terrible stuff going on in the church. Um, and yeah, so that's what led to my first book, People to Be Loved, which kind of tried to pull those, both of those passions together. My passion for theology and my passion, my, my, at that time, my new passion for humanizing LGBT people, even if we, like I, as I do, you know, hold to a traditional view of marriage. We, you know, I, and I, I think the Bible teaches that. Like I, you know, I think it's fairly clear, really clear, actually. Um, uh, but man, we got to go about this conversation with a much, much different tone. We got to care for people and humanize the conversation, and the churches hasn't done that. So hmm. that's been my last. That's been like the last like ten years of my life, uh, pulling those two kind of truth and grace or whatever threads together. When you were working on the, you know, the research side of that and reading these arguments, were you, would you say you were genuinely open to being wrong on the issue of human sexuality? I, I mean, okay, so you're an academic and so we're not allowed to say, you know, yes to that question. Um, but I, before you, before God, before your audience, I mean, I, to the best of my ability, um, was open to going wherever the text leads. And people say, no, no, you could. But I'm, at that time, my track record was I studied warfare and violence and became a pacifist through, through the chagrin of my entire evangelical environment. Um, studied hell, ended up becoming an annihilationist. Um, so I, I, at that time, I had a track record of kind of ditching all my evangelical cards, you know, uh, which, which wasn't intended. I just, I, go i try to go where the text leads and if it leads me away from my school's doctrinal statement then i'll find another job like i i just i i want to have the integrity of following with the text leads where, where the text leads so no i i i um i feel like i was totally open to go, going where the text and especially after i started hearing all these stories and now becoming friends with a lot of lgbt people and really enjoying them like i'm like man you're cooler than all my conservative straight friends you know <laughs> um so I think there was there was almost like a relational desire to affirm same sex marriage, um, but I was still constrained by scripture. So I'm like, I still do need exegetical weight there. And you know, there's some arguments that were like, wow, I, that seems pretty powerful. But then as I dug into, it, I'm like, oh, it's it's maybe not as strong as it seems at face value. So. Mm. Yeah, I feel like I was open, but people will um, say I won't. I wasn't. <laughs> so I, I'm sure some people are wondering. Okay, you didn't have any gay friends, and we're just going to use gay yeah. as kind of a, a generic term sure. here for same-sex attracted of various sorts. Yeah, um, or people who don't identify sexually non-binary. There's lots right. of people who are in different sexual categories, but you didn't have any friends that you knew of uh, that yep. were in those categories. Uh, so my mom was a lesbian, so I had instant access to lots of the lesbian community, at least All right. spent time in gay bars with her. And it's where I yeah. first learned that gay men and lesbian women don't necessarily get a role. <laughs> it's like a junior <laughs> high dance. They go to yeah. each side of the bar. Yeah. Um, but so how did you go about like making gay friends? Yeah, I, I'm trying to, th- I'm trying to think the first, you, you know, what probably sparked it was, I, I I like to blog my I, back at that time when I blogged mm, a lot. I, I would deal you know, blogging. Air, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd air my thoughts out, and and I like to kind of stir the pot, you know. And like, so I started blogging, you know, on the topic things I was thinking about, and it was kind of poking 
poking a lot of people. Um, because I was like, I don't know, Sodom Gomorrah is the best passage to, right. you know, I don't think it's even talking about what we're actually right. talking about. And, and people are like, whoa, whoa, where do you stand? You know, and I'm like, I don't know. I'm like barely through, <laughs> I'm not even halfway through Genesis yet. I'll let you know when I get through the, the, <laughs> the rest of the Bible. <laughs> it's so funny, Drew, that like by me saying, you know what? I don't have a stance yet. I'm going to study the Bible and go where the text leads, that that made so many quote unquote Bible believing Christians so nervous. You yeah. can't do that. You can't study the Bible and go early. Right. You know, like people are really freaking. We need to know where you stand. I'm like, right. I learned from John MacArthur that you, <laughs> your belief should <laughs> arise so from the text. Right. I don't. I haven't studied this yet. I'm in the middle of studying the Bible, which we're supposed to embrace. And you're nervous because I'm studying the Bible. <laughs> it's it's almost as if they forgot that the disciples of Jesus went on a multi-year journey where they uh, ended <laughs> yeah. that multi-year journey, still not understanding or sure where they stood on things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But things, yeah, th- things too come into focus. Uh, yeah. I, so you were blogging, airing your thoughts. People. Oh yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Nervous. So it's your question. Yeah. So I started getting a lot of e- emails from people saying, I, like, I, that, it was so funny. I was teaching a small Bible college and one of my, uh, there's only like eight professors, maybe if you can't all adjunct and everything. And one of them uh, was gay, and I didn't even know it. Hmm. He was married to a woman, had kids, and everything. And and right. uh, I th- and at that time, it was like he, you know, we would say he struggles with same sex attraction or whatever. Like, so he wasn't, you know, publicly. But um, one of my colleagues says, "Well, you know, so and so, this is his story." I'm like, what? So you know, um, and then so talk to him, and then he's like, oh, I got loads of friends if you want to talk to them. Um, some mm. are in seminary, some are re- even conservative, you know. And so it was, it was kind of like that. Like people reach, people were sending me their testimonies and, and mm. on, on, you know, through Facebook, or whatever, and um, emails. So I think it, it just kind of one thing led to another. And every time I'd meet somebody, he's like, well, I got a bunch of friends you could talk to too. So um, it was, it was, it was, um, that that was a fascinating part of my journey, being so ignorant to the relational side of this. Hmm. I mean, unlike you, I mean, raised by a lesbian mother. I mean, you're, you're, you're that's cheat. A, huh? yeah, you it's cheat. a cheat code and, and knowing the gay community. Yeah. <laughs> a buddy of mine, uh, well, you, I don't know if you know Caleb Kaltenbach. His mom, mm-hmm. he was raised by a lesbian mother and a gay dad. Um, hmm. They both, I think they split up when he was like two years old. And then they found their partners, you know. And so... Um, yeah, so he was raised by actually a lesbian mother, gay dad, and their mm. partners, and yeah, so somewhat somewhat similar. But um, uh, yeah, so that's that's kind of how it led, and then it just became kind of a rhythm of my life where you know, um, I, I just felt drawn to LGBT people, and I just yeah, yeah. I wanted to hear their stories. And uh, the the issue of reading the the text more closely, I often warn my students that I'm I'm more biblically conservative than probably anybody in the room. Like I I like to hear what the text says more than the the, the theology piled onto it. Or yeah, you know. yeah. So Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, because in, in Genesis, and if you're doing an Old Testament class, you're going to run into these texts early yeah. on. Um, so it was actually a queer theologian that I was interacting with. Um, who just kind of casually pointed out this was about hospitality. And I was like, yeah, that's not about it. And right. then I went and looked at the structure of the story and I was like, actually, the uh, <laughs> the conflict does come to resolution on the very point of an extreme version of hospitality where you're putting your life right. on the line for the person you're hosting, which students never believed. And then I just pull out the, uh, there's that Navy SEAL story, the uh, the guy who got injured in a firefight and 
um, pulled in by an Afghani man and the Taliban came to his house and he said, no, you know, I have to protect this man because of the hospitality rules, the hospitality oh, codes. Wow. And he, he actually put his entire family's life on the line for this wow. Navy SEAL who was wounded in his house. It's like, so people still take this stuff pretty seriously today. Yeah. But yeah. the reaction I will get from students, and I wonder if you get something or if you got something similar is, um, well, but at the end of the day, what was wrong here is that they were homosexual men. And I was like, well, I think the yeah. violent sexual assault is part <laughs> of the crime here. Right. Um, and if and if you want to look at the 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 Torah's view of sexuality, there are other places you, it, it will right. be more specific. But this isn't one of them. Is is that a fair assessment? In your yeah, mind? I think it's it's spot on. And, and um, you know, it says all the men of the city, old and young. Right. Tent, where, Every man know, to the last man. It's like an egregiously yeah. long introduction right. to the crowd. So yeah. if they're all gay, then there's something in the water. I mean, this is, the, you know, the, uh, there's, what are the odds, you know, that, that this is about a bunch of gay men, you know? Um, I mean, this is, it, it's, it's what, like power rape. It's, it's stuff that happens, you know, in today's, you might, you know, like a prison or something or even, or even in warfare, you know, it's not. I was going to say, it seems to be more of a, um, what would you call it? And I, I'd like to say out of touch, but people who don't have any contact with actual violence and war, violence and, and right. concentrated situations. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it, it, I think people come at these questions with such a binary way of thinking like, well, yes, if they had, were able to, you know, rape what, what was actually these two angels, you know, um, uh, yeah, that would have been a same sex you know, a, a, a sin of same sex nature, you know? Um, but yeah, it's not, we're, we're, it's not talking about two people, the same sex engaging in some kind of consensual same sex relationship, which is what our modern conversation is all, is all right. about. So, and when yeah, the Israelites a, do the same thing, it's not like we go, Oh, thank God it was a woman that they sexually right. assaulted rather than, you know, right, a, right, a, right. A man, yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a port and it's a pastorally poor text because if you're, kid comes out as gay at 14 and the parent says no you can't be gay let's go read sodom and gomorrah and mm. he's like what, what kind of monster do you think i am you know and so right. and that's that's been so and this is where yeah i it seems like christians at that time at the time of when i was blogging were, were uncomfortable with me pointing out bad arguments for what i ultimately would say is a good viewpoint you know mm. um so and that makes people nervous and i think it in and this gets into maybe the psychology of beliefs a little bit. Like, like sometimes when when your when your faith is in your certain, not in God, but in like a certain belief system, and then right. something challenges an aspect of that belief system, you, you kind of start freaking out, you know. Um, but yeah, the freaking out is sometimes even with our own beliefs, uh, mm-hmm. a, an indicator, a symptom of our fickle and firm beliefs that are are just kind of built on a structure rather than a person so a yeah. person through history yeah yeah, yeah. um I, I, two two things uh two situations i'd like to ask you about one is uh things like pedophilia uh mm-hmm. have you encountered any people who have those i mean because we can talk about sexual desires sexual attractions but we can also talk about unwanted sexual attractions as sure. well which for some people same sex attraction is an unwanted attraction uh, yep. for uh, for some people um prepubescent children is an unwanted attraction and well, I guess we'll start there I have another question about something completely unrelated but have you run into this Yeah 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 so um 
J. Michael Bailey is a, 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 psycholo- a sex psychologist or something. Um, uh, not, not a believer um, at University of uh, – or Northwestern University, I, th- I think, mm. in Chicago. Um, and uh, he's, he's kind of been – he's done a ton of research on, on uh, uh, pedophilia and, and what is it? Where does it come from? Can it change or whatever? Um, and yeah, so what he would say, what experts in that area would say is that you have, you have many different kinds of sexual orientation. Some are toward, you know, mo- the majority are toward the opposite sex. Some are toward the same sex and others might be toward younger children of either sex. Um, but these are different orientations. And this is where, you know, I think Christians made the mistake in the past of, of conflating somebody who is attracted to younger, uh, uh a, a man who's attracted to younger boys as being gay. It's like, well, no, that that's a, mm. that's a specific orientation um, that is not, that is different than a same sex orientation that is to somebody of the same age. You have some people that are attracted to older people. You have some people mm. that are attracted to certain, maybe even ethnicities or whatever, where they just are only attracted to a certain, you know, and so, and, and the whole concept of orientation starts to get a little fuzzy around the edges. So, um, but it's, um, yeah, they, it's, I, I have had people, um, not people I know well, but maybe like an email here and there from, from Christians who say, this is a desire that I have and I'm horrified at it hmm. and I don't know what to do with it. I obviously can't tell anybody. Can you imagine confessing that in church? I'm attracted to younger people and right. I do not want to act on this, but I can't, I just, this is the temptation that I have. So it, yeah, yeah. I believe, uh, this American Life. I think it was this American Life on NPR had uh, at least an episode or part of an episode devoted to this, where they anonymized the person who had never mm. acted on it, but um, they they tell the story of they told their mom, mm. and then their mom says, "We need to get you into counseling," and then they and then the counselors bounce them because as soon as you know you got you can't just wow. walk in the door and say, "My problem is I'm attracted to prepubescent children." Um, so you kind of have to work up to it. And then, then as soon as the counselors figure out that that's what they're there for, they pass them on to another counselor who passes them on to another counselor who passes, you know, and there's not many people who are specialized in this. And, Hmm. um, and so they really get stuck with this kind of unwanted sexual desires that they can't even get professional help for. Yeah. And, and from what I've read from the experts, and this goes back, I've been, it's been a while, so I hope I'm representing it well. They say that the expert psychologists say they can't or in most cases they will always have this temptation and desire um which is i mean it's sad all i mean it's just yeah it's just a whole (laughs) complex scenario you know but um yeah and i think for me what's interesting is even when you get into leviticus like there's all it's the torah is very interesting in sexual in general for both what it says Mm -hmm. but also what it does not say that we think that it says or that we wish it says or something like this you know and um but even in leviticus 18 where it's listing out prohibited sexual uh, behaviors not relationships Mm -hmm. but behaviors um you know you can't have sex with your spouse when she's menstruating you Mm -hmm. uh, you can't have sex with an animal you can't it doesn't address the desire at all it just seems to kind of assume that people will want to have sex with an animal or they'll want to have sex with their wife when she's menstruating or they'll want to have sex with the same sex uh, of them uh and it never seems to go after the kind of what we would call orientation today, but just the, the actual action itself. 
Is that yeah, that's true same, to what you same, found? Yeah, same in the New Testament. You do have like Romans 1 does use in its prohibition of same-sex sexual relationships. It does use language of passion and desire right. surrounding over, it, but yeah. it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't discuss desire apart from the action. It's just saying, you know, people were inflamed with passion and for one another. But that's just kind of like when you're describing a sexual act, of course you're not just sitting there thinking about, you know, right. <laughs> think, think about your grocery list or something. I mean, there, there's passions involved in the sex act. So, but it doesn't, this is where I, some people make a mistake. They say, see, the Bible condemns same sex attraction. I'm like, well, mm-hmm. that's not, Romans 1 isn't analyzing what we call same sex attraction apart from mm-hmm. engaging in, in, in the behavior. Um, it's interesting. You do have in ancient literature, especially medical and, um, astrological texts around the first century, you do have um, almost like an ancient version of what we would call sexual orientation. Hmm. Like if the sun, if you're born and the sun and the moon are aligned mm. a certain way, then this person will desire the, the same sex, you know? And if, you, if they're aligned a certain way, they'll desire the opposite sex. And another alignment, they'll desire both sexes. There's a, um, a lesbian scholar, Ber- uh, Bernadette Bruton, who has done a lot of uh, work on sexual orientation in the, in the ancient world and really fascinating text mm. that, um, again, that there, our, our modern notion of sexual orientation is obviously far more developed and nuanced and everything, but there was a kind of belief surrounding that in the ancient world, P- pretty pervasive. E- even Aristotle, there's a quote from Aristotle. I forgot what it was, but it, it points to not just the act, but points to the desire that is mm. kind of like this innate thing that some people desire right, uh, they desire the same sex yeah well i think it becomes difficult when you do see some people who have same-sex desires at certain periods in their life but then mm-hmm. you know move on right and so the, yeah the number of grown women i've known that identified as a lesbian in their college years uh but are now married and are only <laughs> single sex or opposite sex attracted yeah right? That's well not- it, and, and and real i'll well real uh, that's probably not a good word well uh, Older lesbians that I know have a phrase for that. They call them lugs, lesbian right. until graduation. <laughs> right. Well, and there's been several studies that said straight women who identify as straight, who are married to a man today, I think something like 33% um, made out with another woman in during yeah. college or something. Yeah. Like it's, it's, no, it's not unusual at all. It's I, not I know unusual this goes, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, and we've even, you know, uh, I have three daughters and one son and, um, you know, just kind of talking with my children and my wife, just saying women appreciate other women's bodies uh, yeah. and beauty, uh, yeah. maybe as much as men do, even if they're not necessarily sexually attracted. There's just some kind of right. appreciation of other women. None of them are attracted to men, apparently. Like there's <laughs> men are just kind of universally like, but uh, yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> no, that this is this is an interesting I, I'm. This is going to sound weird, but let, let, let me finish my paragraph here. Uh, I, I'm fascinated with female sexuality. <laughs> I don't know right. how to say that. I got the, you. I'm with you so the, far. The, 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 <laughs> star, the scholarly psychological studies of mm. female sexuality. Um, uh, Lisa Diamond is a uh, she's a lesbian psychologist um, from University of Utah, I think, and she she's done a lot of work. Her and others, but she. Um, <clears throat> On, on the fluidity of female sexuality. Mm. In fact, she did a 10-year study of 100 non-straight women 
followed them for 10 years. I'm not literally, you know, ch- checking right, in every right. couple of years. And all 100 basically did not identify as straight. Maybe they were, maybe they were lesbian, maybe bisexual, maybe just kind of like, I'm not sure what I am, but I know I'm not totally just exclusively attracted to men. And it, it's exactly what you said. It, it's over that period of 10 years, the identities changed. I mean, all over the map, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she said, don't quote me on this, but it's something like only like three or 4% of those women had the same identity mm-hmm. at each stage during that, the 10 years, you know? Um, and yeah, it's, 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 but that's well known that, that male, again, we we're talking in generalities here, not absolutes, but generally speaking, male sexuality is a little more compartmentalized, mm-hmm. um, where women, female sexuality, you know, the, it, it integrates emotional attraction, sexual attraction, um, uh, physical admiration, you know, like, and this is, this is what hmm. for teenagers today, when, when this is where my heart goes, like I, for teenage females that are experiencing maybe all kinds of different positive emotional responses to a right. female body, they're being told to interpret that sexually when it could just be, yeah, you're a 14 year old girl and you're in the locker room and the other girl takes off her shirt and her boobs look better than yours or something, you know, right. and you're like, Oh, and then 10 years, you know, that, that was, that was nothing. That was just what it means to be a female growing up. And now it's like, Oh, maybe I'm bisexual, which is why right. you have so many teenage girls identified as bisexual because they had, they have had some kind of aversion to mm. the male body or even the thought of like intercourse, right. which how many 15 year old girls, that's not, that's not uncommon. Right. And then they, they might that's have more of a positive. <laughs> no. <laughs> to have an aversion to the thought of, of sexually being with a guy. Um, yes. As yeah. a 13-year-old, 14-year-old. Yes. And now they're saying, well, I must not be straight then. It's like, well, right. no, sexuality is just way more complex than that. So, yeah. it's Yeah. And uh, that kind of throwing a sexuality and just an identity and kind of locking in. And, you know, it's kind of you – know, yeah. but we all do. It's not just sexuality. I mean, when I was – I joined the military when I was 17. And I was like, I'm a military guy. I'm yeah. like, that's what I do. Like, I, that's my thing. I'm a lifer, yeah. you know. And seven years later, I got out and I was like, I'm done. I don't want to do that anymore, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think that that yeah. particular time of life lends itself to kind of false classification or fi- mm. trying to find a narrative that you can hang yeah. everything on and um, say. And a group that has the same kind of identity yeah. and you kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I, it, yeah, this gets really touchy because I, I don't want to, yeah. Yeah, this is not everybody. No, um, no, and, I, and I have some people yeah. that I see from childhood where I'm like, I bet they are hardcore, one hundred percent same sex attracted, and that's not right. going to change yeah. for the rest of their life. Right? You know, you can just kind of see that. You don't want to like sell it, but yeah. you, you know, just general wisdom, been yeah. around the block, seen enough people. That seems like that's the case with some. But in, yeah, one hundred percent. But and yeah, also uh, add to that. In some cases, at least, there are social environments, especially today, where it might be socially advantageous to. Mm-hmm identify a certain way you get access to a group you um like a friend of mine a friend of mine she's in her early 20s she says when she was in high school she went to is a very progressive kind of environment she says it was just bad to be like a white straight girl these are her exact words like i was and that's why i was a white straight girl and that was like everybody's like ew like get with the program you know so she ended up transitioning she became uh, non-binary then trans took testosterone ended up you know just but then after she graduated high school just kind of like what am i doing and now she's a female she's a white straight girl again you know um 
And but that's not that's I mean, gosh, any parent or psychologist worth their salt will say, well, high school's filled with these kind of just finding out who you are and 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 group think and 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 group identities can can influence various aspects of of how you um um identify. Yeah, I mean, I was telling my class yesterday that you know I was fourteen and a half, almost fifteen years old when I got my first tattoo straight across my back, thinking like. Yeah, this is who I. Fourteen. Yeah, <laughs> Professor Inkslinger's in Olathe, Kansas. We had to drive four hours to get there because it was illegal, you know where where I was from. So, <laughs> what, what uh, was the tattoo? Skinhead, straight across my back in oh, old right. English letters. Skinhead. skinhead. Oh my yeah. word, that's right. Yeah, I remember. Yep. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and that again, didn't well, did it? yeah. <laughs> well, and I I was so mad because when I went for my military physical when I was seventeen, they said that's a gang tattoo. You got to either get it taken off or covered up, one of the two. And I was so upset. I was like, we weren't a gang. That's stupid. You know, day one of boot camp, you know, you're stripped naked in front of everybody uh, with all of your possessions in front of you. It's a contraband check basically. So you got to strip naked and just stand there while you know for an hour while they go through everybody's stuff. I was never more glad in my life that they had made me cover up that skinhead tattoo <laughs> than that moment. Because uh, you don't really get time to explain things, you know, uh, in prison yeah. and or jail and in boot camp. You don't get time to explain to people like, no, my yeah. da- my stepdad was black. My sister's black. You know, like, yeah, we're not racist. Did you, did you get it removed or no? Just- I got it covered up with a giant like a, a tattoo, like four times the size. So uh, a skinhead buddy did it for me for cheap. So, um <laughs> But, but, you know, just that kind of that level of, I was committed. I thought this is, this is brotherhood or die rest of my life. Like it all made sense in that circle of, uh, I wouldn't call it peer pressure, just that kind of group think that we were in. And we were all just like, we didn't think we'd live to be 30. You know, this is it. Might as well just ride hard or die. And, um, Mm -hmm. And I, and I can see those dynamics working even, you know, in amongst healthy kids and decently healthy relationships, you see those dynamics mm-hmm. now working on this kind of sexual, uh, axis, um, yeah. more, yeah. more than it was alive. Certainly when I was a teenager, it's hard because if you even have this kind of conversation, um, people think you're just, so kids are just making it up or no one's really mm-hmm. getting like, that's not at all what I'm saying. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just thinking, I'm just saying that you have to have your head in the sand if you think that like teenage social environments don't have any effect on sexuality or, or right. gender identity like none like that's just that that's the one aspect of humanity that's just immune to like so social influence we are profoundly social beings i mean even things like mirror near neur, right know, mirror neurons mirror, yeah. yeah yeah like we're, i mean all the way down to our brain chemistry is right. affected by other people you're saying sexuality is unaffected it's the only part of humanity is unaffected by <laughs> well let's let's be so. honest like 1980s teen classic movies weren't great sexually formative <laughs> devices either, right? Yeah. Like everybody was trying to have sex as quickly as they could. And I mean, t- teens are actually having less sex now than ever I before, know. right? Um, is so, that just because of porn or is there something else? It, it's got to be porn. Yeah. But yeah, I, I'm sure it's, a, it's, I'm sure it's a lot of factors working together. Yeah. Um, I want to change the topic twice. One here is what do you think of, because I have uh, friends who are in this category who are same-sex attracted, Christians, serious Christians, like devout, went into their marriage where their partner knew that they were same-sex attracted, but Mm -hmm. they wanted all the benefits of marriage. They wanted friendship, lifelong partner. Even my mom, I mean, this is one of the things that she regretted, you know, in her final years was 
that she never had a lifelong partner to, you know, even for like when she was dying, someone who could take care mm. of her in those last years. And, mm. um, so somebody who just says, you know what, I, I, I believe in biblical sexuality. It's not my attraction, mm-hmm. but, um, I'm going to go there and everybody knows going into it. Um, yeah, honestly, uh, some of the best, most healthy, flourishing, vibrant marriages I know are that situation. Mm. Yeah, I know um, a few. Yeah. In fact, I was just, just literally on Friday, uh, I was down in San Diego at a conference and uh, some friends of my new new friends that I've only known for a few months are in this situation. They're, they're a little unique. They, they were, um, the people I'm thinking of, they, they've been, they, they, they started dating when they're like 13 hmm. and uh, he didn't even come out to himself until right. he was like 18, 19. So, so they were, and they, they got married really young, um, but they've been married seven, eight years. And um, I mean, it, it, again, not without its challenges, but right. I mean, what I say it's healthy is because if it's honest, that's the key. If, if you start right. hiding stuff or think I'm going to get married and that's going to make me straight or whatever. Um, but when it's healthy, they've had to learn early on that a healthy marriage cannot rely on sexual attraction. Uh, straight people have to learn that the, the hard right. way, three, four, five, six, seven years in a marriage, when you're looking at the other person and you're like, I almost said something a little crude, but well, I'll just say it. You know, you, <laughs> the evidence bears this out when you're looking at, you know, you know, you're looking like, I want to have sex with everybody but my spouse. Right. You know? right. <laughs> right. I'm not saying that's everybody's experience i'm just saying like the divorce rate and porn rate and affairs and all this stuff like bears it out that like yeah if you think that getting married is just going to um flourish because you are initially just really sexually attracted to each other that's not a healthy view of marriage period and Mm. so this scenario where one's gay um they have to learn the hard way like there's there has to be much more to our marriage than sexual attraction because we don't have that piece to rely on. And I'm going to say that's a very, if done, if done rightly, that's going to, that's actually a, can be a very healthy marriage. Now, having said that, I know of many other situations, it was a disaster, you know, that, that yeah. scenario, but it's primarily because I think they had, they weren't honest or yeah. they had a, maybe an unhealthy view of, of, of marriage to begin with. So kind of, uh, yeah, I've certainly known people who've gone into it where they didn't, they weren't honest with themselves or the other, and it yeah. clearly was a, well, hopefully marriage will fix me uh, right. kind of mentality. And yeah, I, I had a really horrific one mm. where I just watched it implode and I, I yeah. didn't have the, uh, the, the, one of the spouses thought that I was a heretic because I, I didn't believe that gays had a special place in hell. Um, and, <laughs> and then they went on to marry somebody who was obviously gay that they did not see. And of course, <laughs> I couldn't even speak into it and then had oh, to watch wow. it explode, uh, over a few, over a few yeah. years. So I know um, two, two friends of mine that ended up getting divorced. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's again, uh, I probably, there's, there's probably statistically a lot more that implode, but again, I, I think there's usually like other factors at work. They're not mm-hmm. simply one's gay and therefore it just couldn't work out there. There's, other factors that go into that. Yeah. But, um, I don't think yeah. most Christians have practically or openly thought about this. Uh, it's funny. I first heard about this when I was living in Israel, they were saying, cause, uh, Orthodox Jews, they have fixers who, who like try to match families together. Like they match the people, <laughs> but it's, they have to know the families. Cause you know, you're not just marrying <laughs> yeah. the other person, you're marrying their family. Yeah. 
And so there's fixtures who are just for uh, lesbians and gay guys that who want to have a, a normal Orthodox Jewish family marriage. They want to they want to mm-hmm. live that life. Yeah. Um, and so this is what they specialize in, and they both commit to it ahead of time that they're going to commit themselves sexually to one another and life-wise mm. to each other. Right. And then I thought, right. oh, that sounds bad. And then the more I thought about it, I was like, wait. And then I thought, oh, wait, I think I know people who have done this. <laughs> like, So it's not yeah. like the Christian church hasn't been doing this already. It's just whether they've been doing it well or poorly. Um, right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Or ignorantly. Um, yeah. I want to change topics completely, uh, kind of completely, because it's still uh, this is integrated in, in your life here. Um, mm-hmm. You're a uh, you've done a lot of podcasting. You were an early adopter for I remember seeing your Theo blog come up, and then uh, podcasting, <laughs> and and also you know you did what is so unusual for most white guys in academia is you, you stepped out of academia and said, okay, I'm going to actually go do something else, which yeah. Um, most most people are terrified to step out of academia because they think it's too <laughs> precious of a life that we live, and um, <laughs> which it is a pretty e- easy life that we live. But um, yeah, so uh, I'm interested to know what you like. Why podcasting? Why do you think it yeah. works? What does it do? Um, I've got my own ideas as a you know 35 year NPR listener. Uh, <laughs> what do you think podcasting does that's so special? I I love this question, and I don't. Um... I, I I would love to. I'll offer some thoughts and throw it back on you because I'm, I'm deeply interested in this question as well. So I started my podcast started as a 15 minute radio show hmm. on Christian Talk or Christ, a Christian radio station here in Boise, Idaho, in 2014. Um, I had a slot from two to two fifteen every afternoon, five days a week, um, called "What Does the Bible Actually Say?" Hmm. and I would take just a little snippet of something like um, some familiar thing in the Bible that, you know, that may not be true, you know, like, you know, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) That was probably one of them, you know. Um, And I kind of ran out of material. I mean, that's, you know, five days a week is a lot. But like, you know, I think the very first one was like, was Jesus born in a, um, where was Jesus born? Yeah. And, you know, the, the Greek word is only used one other time in Luke, and it refers to a spare room of a house, and it wasn't like this commercial hotel. Like right. they're from Bethlehem, and so they would have, they wouldn't have stayed at some like commercial hotel or something. Like they're going to be at somebody a relative's house, you know. So, um, stuff like that. Um, was Jesus a carpenter? You know, the word hmm. tech, tecton tecton yeah. doesn't necessarily mean carpenter. It's one who works with his hands, and the whole point is. Anyway, so that that so I think a year into doing that radio show. Um, the producer, the guy, this young kid who's like was doing all the audio stuff. He's like, "Hey, do you want me to also release these as a podcast?" Hmm. I was like, "What's a podcast?" <laughs> I didn't know what it was. So I was like, "Yeah, sure, I guess whatever." I mean, doesn't no skin off my back, you know. So, so that's how it started. Um, after a while, the radio show dropped me. I think for obvious reasons. I mean, who, the, who's listening to Christian talk radio in Idaho at two in the afternoon? Not the kind of people that kind of jive with my right, right <laughs> flavor of Christianity. So, um. So then the producer said, well, hey, I, I can continue producing this as a podcast. Um, so that, that's where it started. Hmm. So it, it's been around for a long time. You know, I, That's why, if you look, I have over a thousand episodes, but a lot of those were five days a week, 15 minutes early oh on. You know, That's yeah. how I got to. Um, and then I started doing interviews maybe four or five years, maybe in like 2018, 2019, started doing almost exclusive interviews with other people. It started out 20, 30 minutes and then 
grew into an hour. Um, yeah. So, so the shape of the podcast now where it's about, you know, twice a week, full hour long interviews with other people that's that it's been doing, I've been doing that for about maybe four years now. So anyway, um, it was just a hobby on the side that I did kind of after hours kind of thing. And then now I still, I devote Tuesdays to podcasting. Um, and, uh, but now it's grown into a, a full, full on ministry. I've almost a thousand people on Patreon supporting it. Wow. We do a conference now every year that we didn't know if anybody would show up. And we, the first year we had 1200 people, we maxed out the 1200 people. Yeah, and ninety percent were from out of state. Like they, these were not hardly anybody from Boise. Nobody That's from Boise. Crazy. A few people from Boise even listen to my podcast, right? Um, so yeah, no, it's crazy. It's absolutely insane. And I, I don't know what to think. I mean, it, it, it it's one thing if I get kind of a superficial like, "Hey, I dig your show," you know, like it's so cool or whatever. But I've had people that said I, I was, I lost my faith and your podcast brought me back to the mm. faith. Um, I've had many people in the LGBT community, um, you know, parents reconciled with their kids, um, just all kinds of, uh, uh, the same kind of feedback you would get from like a, maybe a, a, a pastor who's, mm-hmm. you know, in, involved in people's lives and stuff. And yet most of these people I've never physically met or seen in person. We do zoom chats now. And, you know, so I, I keep up with, um, you know, as much as I can with, with some of the audience. Um, and I don't know what that, I don't know what to do with, uh, uh, you know, on, on the one hand, I'm like, well, is this real? You know, I don't mm-hmm. actually know these people. I'm not their pastor. On the other hand, I can't deny that in a post kind of internet world, like this is kind of sometimes the primary way in which people relate, you know, um, so I don't know what to do with it. I don't know why I can just have a conversation like this. This is just like we're just having a conversation. Right. We're not yeah. even. We would have no a similar conversation like, if uh, we were sitting yeah. over a table, right? Or, over a totally. Beer. Yeah. And 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 yet this is what I do. This is what almost every episode is. And how, I don't know. I don't. I can't explain why this kind of avenue medium is is having the effect it is on on mm. people's lives you know do you have any i mean i think people are hungering for just authentic yeah. honest conversations so they kind of get to listen it. in maybe or yeah they get to listen in to you know slightly more expert conversations sometimes maybe <laughs> yeah depends on what we're yeah. talking about but I, I think so i think it's ira glass from this american life you can tell i'm a big uh this american life radio lab head <laughs> Um, I got to get into that. See, people keep telling me about it. I've only listened to maybe oh a couple. Oh my goodness! But, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, he talks about the intimacy of the radio and now podcasting, where you know, it's you're not watching like yours. You can watch a video as well, but a lot of people are getting it through their ears, and there's nothing to distract them. They're not looking at anything. Mm. It's really just you know your voice straight into their ear. And so there develops a kind of intimacy with the person. My my question, like yours, is it's an asymmetrical in- intimacy. So like there was yeah. some year at SBL where OnScript podcasts had gotten popular enough to where people were like coming up to me and wanting to take pictures, uh, which <laughs> really freaked me out. Uh, and there was even one instance, I think I've talked about it before, but a guy heard me talking at a publisher's booth, didn't, and, and then I, so he didn't see my name tag. And then 
he said, oh, I heard your voice and I'm so used to hearing your voice that um, I recognized it from across the, you know, the room or whatever. Yeah, um, I've gotten that before. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I just think like, oh, there's something not right about that. Um, huh. But I do think there, the, the, the quality that your show obviously has, and I think people like Joe Rogan have this as well, just curious, open, honest, mm. like reflective. Mm. I, you know, how much, you know, if you, if you think the competition is propagandist, uh, agendaed, edgy, snarky, yeah. uh, content served up to just make people mad or get them on some side, you know, the yeah. antidote to that is in some ways just like, no, I'm actually willing to have my mind change here or, or I need to hear you. Even if I'm, you know, even if I'm convicted about this, I need to hear what you have to say. Yeah. Yeah. And you do have the, you know, both versions are pretty popular. The two that came to my mind are, that are very different are like Ben Shapiro, right. which is of, of the other sort you're yes. talking about. And then you know, obviously like Joe Rogan, very curious, genuine, I think thoughtful, yeah. even if you totally disagree and honest. Um, or or the, probably my favorite is uh, Lex Friedman. Have you gotten into Lex mm-hmm. Friedman? No, Fit, no, no, I would say his posture is one that I hope mine reflects the most. He's an MIT professor. I mean, brilliant dude. He's been on Rogan a few times. Um, but he he will have a wide range of people on. Like he had Kanye on. I mean, mm. he had uh um and he got he and he gets like I do, he he'll get ridiculed for why did you platform that person, you know? And and he's like, I I'm I'm having curious conversations with people. I'm not like agreeing. And if I dis he'll push back and right, stuff. But right. very very you can tell you can just feel the the honesty coming from his posture in the podcast. And mm. I I love that. It's it's just for me. It's like this is how I learn, and then I just hit record. And if other people jive with it, fine. If not, you know, I get plenty of one star reviews. I mean, people can't. I mean, it's it's those are my favorite. Actually, right. <laughs> the one star. They're so wild because I didn't fit their narrative. I didn't. Right. I said something that didn't fit. You know, um, or I had a guest on that they disagreed with, or um. So I yeah I I my question is what is an ecclesiology of podcasting like mm. where, where does this fit i because because i can i can make an argument that it's actually hurting the church or helping the church you know like i think and i don't i don't know there's hopefully it's encouraging the church to maybe do more of this more yeah. honest and conversations that's what i was gonna say i think it's there's a lack of you know with students as well uh, a lot of times you can tell by the questions they ask like kind of where they're at with the material. And so sometimes I'll, you know, have to say like, that's not the best question. Let's find a better version of that question to ask, you know, to get you where you want to go. Uh, That's such a great way to put it. I've I've gotten in trouble for saying it that way. So some people think I'm shaming them. I'm like, no, 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 it's you're, you're on the right track. You just need a better version. All right. Um, those tracks aren't going to get you to the destination. Um, so in, in some sense, conversations like these that where, where people have at least some expertise, you're, you're teaching people how to ask questions or where, where to poke and prod, you know, hopefully on a good day, I've heard something that maybe somebody else wouldn't have thought of, but I think, Oh, I need to go after that one. And, and maybe they're screaming into their, you know, their headphones. Why didn't you ask this other question? Right. Uh, yeah. I'll get those emails yeah. too. Why didn't you ask them? this? Yeah. Why didn't you ask them that? Um, but yeah, that's where I get like, I'll, when I have the, the hard balance for me is when I have on somebody who might be saying things that I don't agree with, um, when do you jump in and push back or when do you just let them talk and, and pick and choose what part you want to push back on? Or if I had on somebody that 
is giving kind of a heterodox view on something that I'm not an expert in. Like I'm not, right. I don't know, you know, um, I just released, I mean, a two hour long podcast yesterday with a Christian Palestinian sharing his thoughts. Oh, yeah. on the- I haven't listened to it yet, but I'm, I mean, I have lots of it's, Palestinian uh, friends and, um, yeah, I, well, given your experience with Israel, I mean, I would, yeah. I would love to hear your um, perspective on it. I'm but, not speaking but like publicly. that. I, he, he's <laughs> what's that? I said I'm not speaking publicly on it right now. Actually, I've had a lot I, of Jewish friends that are like, "Why aren't you out there on the socials, like tearing things up?" And I'm like, "I don't know if anything can be heard at this point." But along a conversation yes. can be heard. Yeah, and that's all it was. And yet already, I've I've, I've gained some listeners and lost some followers mm. because of, of that. You know, because everything's so volatile. And I and I and I toyed with should I. This does kind of relate to your original question about podcasting. Like, I do, I do have to navigate this, you know. Like, there's, I, there's several episodes I know. And I'm like, man, if when I release this, this is, this is gonna be, this is gonna not make some people happy. Mm. Um, but should I not release it? And there, there's been some. I, it, I don't just ju- any kind of volatile issue in culture. I don't feel the need to jump in, you know. But th- this one was, this one was something I was very very interested in i mean i would i was i was i lived in israel for for yeah. a few months um have many well several friends relatives that are that are you know israeli and and uh obviously you raise evangelicals so bathed in one side of the narrative um and even there like people the, that's the only side you need to listen that's the right, right side i'm right. like well maybe it is but i i is there anything wrong with listening simply listening to another side from a christian who's a pacifist who doesn't isn't for Hamas right. like condemns Hamas right. you know like so yeah it's uh well I think that anyway. conversation in particular is you know it's a good example of on the continuum of podcasting there's you know bringing on biblical scholars who will help people think about texts in ways they haven't thought about them before that's like the low hanging fruit yeah you can help people think through things sure then there's something like the Hamas Israel war, which is such a high context. I mean, you know, I yeah. lived in Israel for a while. I used to travel there three times a year. I worked for an Israeli mm. think tank. Um, right. And, and like, I look at this and I'm, and I, I don't even know what to think of it, but I know mm-hmm. most of what I hear, I'm like, oh, you don't even understand, right. you know, two, three layers into the complexities here, much less yeah. the seven, eight, where I don't really understand as well. Right. Right. And so um, there is some point where, and it would be the same thing with psych, any kind of experts, uh, where if the people don't know enough and they're only getting aside, it becomes right. a form of propaganda, even if you're really just trying to genuinely listen. Um, right. Or it can, be, it can tend in that direction. Uh, at the OnScript podcast, which is where we interview biblical scholars on their newest books, um, you know, we had a very famous um, Old Testament scholar for evangelicals, a very famous Old Testament scholar. And I disagreed with just about every page of the book. In fact, I said I had to duct tape it to my hands because I wanted to throw it against the wall. Uh, I, I was like, God, did you say who it was? I want to know who it was. It, or did you, it's or, somebody or no. that everybody, anybody who reads Old Testament <laughs> scholars would know. Um, <laughs> But it was just really problematic. But we kind of promise a friendly interview. So I had to do the like, well, what would you say to somebody who would point out this passage and this passage and this passage, you know? Um, 
And so, and even there, I felt a little bit like I didn't want to bring the hammer down. We, you know, sufficiently peppered him with questions that showed that I thought there were some flaws in his logic and and his exegesis, Mm -hmm. quite honestly. But um, it's difficult uh, to, in, in those situations, even that interaction, it was kind of beyond what most people who read popular Old Testament stuff would have ever picked up on. So, okay, you know, yeah. that was my problem. And I, am I just promoting this guy's idiosyncratic, very idiosyncratic views? Or am I like just tearing into him in ways that people won't even understand? And I, was I too light? You know, I, I said everything politely, but it was actually there were some digs in there, which he, he noticed. Yeah. So. I had a sim. That's good. That's how that's it's good to know. I'm not the. Well, it's, this is the dance that I think is tough because you could have a. I, I don't want it to be a debate. It's the yes. podcast. My debate. I don't like debates. Yeah. I'm not that kind of person, you know. And and I and I'm a big fan of understanding before you refute. So even if I think I'm like, man, I didn't agree with several things in this book, and I'm talking to him. I'm like, so help me. To, I I still want to like mm-hmm. understand, and I feel like it is pe- people listening. I think it's their job too to do their own due mm-hmm. diligence. Mm-hmm. Like I'm. This is again. I really mean it. Like I, I, I'm. I just want to hear from this person, and then I hit record. And if you want to listen to, great. If not, change the channel. You know, I don't. But like, and th- that's where the the ecclesiology of podcasting is. I'm I'm not sure we've quite figured it out. Like, I said, this is not a sermon from a stage. It's a conversation with a neighbor hmm. with the record button on. That's that's kind of the genre of it. But I, I at the same time, it does have the persona of being kind of authoritative on some level. I mean, me and I, we both have PhDs. We have guests on that we have an expertise, some kind of expertise on some level. Mm-hmm. Um, people listening, they are going to tend to trust us because it's a podcast. You know, I, so I don't know. I think, I, I think that's where it, it can cross the line. Um, I'm very wary. On script is great because there's six of us. We rotate Actually, I haven't been participating that much, but uh, we, you know, it's different people. There's not, yeah. there's not a singular voice uh, uh, in Onscript. Yeah. For yours and mine, this, it's always me asking the questions. They're getting to yeah. know me. Like it's, it's so weird when I meet people and they're like, oh, I listen. I'm like, great. So now you know how I think. Now you know the kinds of questions I ask. I don't know anything about you. Um, yeah. <laughs> this is not fair, right? Um, but I think what happens, my, here would be my guess, is what happens in that situation is there's an implicit trust in the the person who's asking the question, the, the podcast who I signed up to listen to. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of have, and I don't know if it's earned or unearned, uh, kind of trust over time um, with my listeners. They know what kinds of questions they ask. They know when I say, I wonder what someone would say that I'm like trying to push back a little bit. Um, and I, I guess the, my question is at what point does it become brand management? What, what, what point do I become a brand versus, um, Mm. this is a kind of project where, you know, you're going to hear a lot of me, but it's essentially not about me. It's about this other thing. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I also, yeah. Is Preston Sprinkle a brand? That's such a weird question. <laughs> Can I get soap? I hope not. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> That's as funny as I, I'm actually s- such an introvert. 
like I can go all week without yeah. talking to other human being and it doesn't like I don't mind it. I to to my fault. I'm not saying that's good. That's yeah, actually no, same for me. I have the same problem. And, and but the podcast I do love I love podcast. I love having conversations on the podcast. So so people that is odd too. Like people do know intimate parts about my life. Mm-hmm. There's there's stuff people know about me that I think the, my wife might not even <laughs> like. She'll hear something. The and preacher's problem. It's like I didn't know you felt. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Yeah, That's so yeah. weird. Like, um, yeah, I don't know what to do with that. Is is and I guess my question is always like, how much of this is healthy? Is is good? I do know it's bearing good fruit. I think in people's lives with the church, generally speaking. Um, but what are some of the things that we'll look back in 10, 20, 30 years and say? Kind of like social media, like when that first started becoming mm. big, and now we're kind of looking at some of the how much people's self image is just screwed up because of Instagram and right. filters and stuff. I mean, it's are we going to look back and say there was unintentional, unseen kind of harm that podcasting has done? Have you thought about that? Or uh, I have. I I think I buffer it with the the fact that I mean, I'm sure you have you. I just have people in my life that if. If I yeah. have done, if they, if they're listening and then going like, mm, some, you know, yeah. you're going too far on this line or, you know, like, yeah, um, you're putting too much of yourself out. Like my kids, I had my students listen to one on, um, sexual assault where I admitted that I'd been sexually molested as a child. And, mm. and I, my kids were also my students in my class cause they went to my college. And so they listened to it and, you know, they came back and said, I did not know you were sexually molested. <laughs> like oh, you had wow. never told yeah. us that. Right. But it was an episode where me and Aaron Heim were talking about sexual assault and Jesus mm. and all these things. And so I was trying to be sensitive and vulnerable in this podcast in a way that I hadn't been with my own children. And that, so that, wow, that was yeah. a problem. That's an obvious, like a big one, right. Sure. Where I had to, um, had to like go and say, I am so sorry. That's, you know, and also all their friends yeah. in class, you know, now knew this about me, which <laughs> For for me, I was trying to like destigmatize it. Like, hey, I'm a normal sure. person who's lived a fairly normal life, but I had this happen to me, and it really did impact me in in certain ways. Um, yeah. yeah, but yeah, that that was putting too much of Drew out there for the masses. Yeah, right? that yeah. That, see, I would be prone to I I kind of an open book. I'm yeah. fine being totally honest and like here's who I am, and and I think my wife has helped me maybe temper that a little bit. Yeah. Like same. Especially, yeah. I mean, I like I want to, I want to protect my my family too. Just because I'm in some kind of spotlight doesn't mean they want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I talk about controversial topics doesn't mean they want to be known for for that. So, so I actually don't share a lot of specifics about my family on on the podcast. Um, my wife will come on sometimes, and, mm-hmm. and I kind of you know. And once she gets, it's funny. Like once she gets going, she'll she'll get real honest. You know? <laughs> I'm like, ah, oh, good for you. Yeah. you know? <laughs> and I think right. there's a certain and same thing. Preachers do this all the time, where they'll say things from yeah. the pulpit that you know yeah. they're not saying directly to their. They'll apologize from the pulpit or talk about how they were wrong, and they didn't apologize <laughs> to their spouse or their children for it. You know, yeah. so yeah, yeah. It, I think it's the oddity of the um, that kind of public public speech persona. Yeah. Well, yeah. Preston, uh, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, all the work you've done. I know it's been meaningful to a lot of people I know uh, as well. And so I appreciate all of the work that you've put into that this little podcast thing. Yeah. Thank you, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It was, it was a lot of fun. We should do it again sometime. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture 
For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode. 